Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we ask that our offering of song would be pleasing to you. And Lord, we do want to acknowledge and fully proclaim that it is only by your grace that we stand here this morning. And Lord, we're asking that you would minister your grace to each heart here today. Lord, that we would leave this place better equipped to serve you this coming week, to show this world in which we live the truth of God's amazing grace. We ask that you would work in the hearts of those that may be with us this morning that do not know you as their Savior, that today would be at least another step in the right direction, a step closer to the Savior. And Lord, that you would encourage each of us to serve you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the last hymn. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be moving around a little bit uh, this morning. I'd like to preach on the contradictions of the cross. Uh, If you stop and think about the cross on which Jesus died, uh, it is a place of much contradiction. There are things that just... Uh, do not go together, are actually totally against each other, and yet they meet at the old rugged cross. And uh, you talk about a place of judgment without restraint. If you're uh, reading uh, in uh, your devotional book, one of the first devotions of the year was talking about the cup that Jesus drank and how that it was the sins of all mankind and And uh, I often don't take time to publicly disagree with that, but that's an important thing. Jesus did not drink the sins of mankind. He took the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. That's what was in that cup. And Jesus drank it all for us. It was the place where God's wrath was poured out upon His Son with unmitigated, unrestrained fury. And yet the cross is a place of love. A love that is so boundless, so beyond the comprehension of man that all we can do is talk about it. And yet it was a place of God's judgment. It's a place of defeat. Jesus died on the cross. And yet, the greatest victory in all mankind was won when he rose again from the dead the third day. Amen? It is the only place that we can have true victory starts at the cross. And yet, it is a place of death. But if you and I will go there today, it is a place of life and that life eternal. And I'd like to preach about these things today. And so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18. It says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. I, I want to challenge you to think this morning, to, to, to go over these things in not only your mind, but in your heart, 
that only through God's power could we have both His love and His wrath brought together in one place and have something good happen. All of the wrath of Almighty God was poured out on Him. I I can't say it any better. I heard another preacher quoting, and so I have no idea who the origin of this quote is, but it's simply this, that Jesus Christ, as the infinite God, was able to deal with the infinite wrath of God in a finite space in time. Meaning that in those hours... He hung upon the cross as the infinite God. He took the infinite wrath of God and was able to deal with it. If you choose not to allow that work of Christ to be put to your account, you will spend all eternity dealing with the wrath of God in a place called the lake of fire. You see... It is through the power of God that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and offers to you and I the love of God. Look here under first in Colossians. Let's just turn over to Colossians chapter 1. If you're there in Corinthians, you got 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then the little book of Colossians. If you got the Thessalonians, you went too far. But Colossians verse 1 and chapter 20 says, And having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth, Or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, I wish we just had time to spend the whole morning there, but we want to make just one small point. The cross... Though God poured out His wrath with no bounds, no restraints, yet Jesus made peace for you and I at the cross to reconcile all things. You see, most religion teaches us that if we'll try hard, God will understand our failures. How many of you, before you came, became a member here, went to a church that taught those things and, and actually believed those things and, and tried? And, but how many of you will take a moment and remember the emptiness that was still inside because you knew that your best wasn't good enough? You understood that no matter how much they, they told you, well, you just trust in God, He'll take care of it. Well, I want you to understand that God did take care of it. That's what the cross was all about. That's where God reconciled uh, uh, our sins and, and our failures and our rebellion and our enmity and hatred against God. He reconciled every sin committed by every man that ever lived. Now, I don't know about you, and this is just such a, uh, a poor illustration, but uh, it, it brings home the point is, 
if if you have a checking account, how many of you have a checking account? And you write checks and you send them to people and people send them to you. And, and uh, you should, on a very regular basis, reconcile your checking account. How many know what happens when you don't reconcile your checking account? is normally you will begin to figure out that you have more money in your checking account than the bank says you have. And when there's a disagreement between what the bank says you have and what you say you have, who loses? Uh, You do. There's no question about it. They're going to charge you all kinds of fees and do terrible things because they say you're spending money that you do not have. Now, the word reconcile in the banking means that you take out your facts and your figures and the facts and figures from the bank and you force them to agree. Now, you say, how do I force them to agree? Well, it's very easy. It's called mathematics. Uh, Now, new math will not work. Two plus two does not equal 22 in your checkbook. It, It just won't work. And I know that if you're, I used to remember how to do this, but I've forgotten. But I can make two, uh, could at one time make two plus two equal five using a algebraic, algebraic expression that is incorrect. But you can, it's just a sleight of hand thing. Uh, you can make it appear, but if you will use the law of mathematics, 2 plus 2 does equal 4, always will equal 4, always has equal 4. You, you cannot change those things. It, the law of mathematics will force you to change figures in your book or something and reconcile or make them agree. Now, I'll tell you what's really nice. You come down to the end of the month. You get your statement from the bank, you type it all in, hit the button, and it says agreement. Isn't that nice? I remember one time we had had someone keeping the church books, and I won't tell you who that was, years and years ago. And we changed that, and I began keeping the books, and I went through, and I found out that we were a nickel off. I found the nickel. It was somewhere in four to six months prior to that. Somebody just typed a number wrong and there was the nickel. But you see, I believe that you ought to be exact when you reconcile. Because if you don't, it's not reconciled. You're just playing games. Balance adjustments are not reconciling. You got to go back, you got to find the problem, you got to add it up, and you got to do it right. Now, I want you to understand that in that simplistic illustration of reconciling a checkbook using the laws of mathematics, God used the laws of His holiness and His judgment and the penalties for that judgment and that sin. And he reconciled every sin with God's judgment and poured it out upon Jesus Christ, who reconciled, who fulfilled all that you and I would have to endure so that our sin debt 
could be forgiven. You see that word forgiveness. I mean, sometimes uh, uh, we we just need to spend a whole Sunday morning on forgiveness. True biblical forgiveness never occurs without payment in full. God does not just sweep your sins under the carpet and say that's okay. That's what the cross was all about. It is a reconciliation. And yet God in that exacting reconciliation of pouring out every drop of His wrath upon Jesus Christ was done so because He loved you and I. And He loved those that would trust in Jesus. And He loved His church. Read Hebrews chapter 10. It said, who for the joy that was set before him. And you get down to chapter, verse 22 of that same chapter. For the general assembly and church of the firstborn, Jesus loved us. And that love and that wrath, God's forgiveness and God's judgment all came together at a place called the old rugged cross. And God reconciled. Our sins. So that his record keeping would be perfect. We have a tendency. It's just part of being a human being. Of just wanting to cover up mistakes. In fact... If you want to know the difference between a professional musician and an amateur musician, is a professional covers up his mistakes and you don't know it. that's, That's the way mankind works. When a professional musician makes a mistake, normally you have no idea that it's been made. He knows it. But he was able to cover it up. You know, that's the best that man can do. God says that's not good enough. We're not into covering up mistakes. We're into dealing with what truly is. And I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And we want to read a few verses here this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to be covering a lot of Scripture this morning. So limber your fingers. Because we're preaching on the contradictions of the cross. How that God's love and God's wrath, God's justice and God's forgiveness met through the power of the cross to reconcile us. And let's just start reading here in verse 9. But we see Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified all 
are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Do you get that? This is the love of God. It says, that last verse that we, are, that we read, that for all of these reasons that we've been talking about, for the sufferings of the cross, God had a purpose, and that purpose was so that He would not be ashamed to call us His brethren. Now, most of us have been in a situation where we were ashamed for someone to know who we were. I mean, our last inner city missions class, we were, I was driving some, uh, somebody home from the airport and I made a left turn and I didn't look at my watch. It was after four o'clock. And guess who was there? It was one of them friendly, wonderful people dressed in the blue uniforms. And they wanted to talk to me. And here I got a college student sitting right beside me. And I just got pulled over for making an illegal left turn. And you know what the problem was? I had no clue I'd even done it. And I'm just sitting there going, what's wrong? He said, driver's license, registration. And then it hit me. And I went, oh, no, I did it, didn't I? He said, yes, sir, you did. And five minutes later, he came back and he said, your record's clean. He said, just don't do it again. I'm going, no ticket. But I'll tell you what, my face gets red, I think, even telling the story. I mean, you're just sitting there and you're going, this was so dumb. It wouldn't be so bad except the name of the church is on the side of the van and all of those things. And you're just sitting there going, this is not the way it ought to be. I, I am embarrassed. How many of you have been there? Jesus said, he's not ashamed. To identify with you and me. Do you get that? I mean, if that isn't love, I don't know what is. That God would condescend, that God would bring Himself down, that God would send Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to suffer for all of our sins. So that he could be made perfect through sufferings, so that he would not be ashamed to call us brethren. That's God's work through the cross. Jesus took all of God's wrath so that we could be made accepted in the beloved. And all God's people said, I mean, I don't know how that works, but I am sure glad that God has done it His way and not my way. Amen. I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. The cross is the place of God's love and God's wrath. 
Galatians chapter 2. It's the place of God's, of our defeat and God's victory. It, it is the place of defeat and victory. And we've been through this many times. There's one word that puts those two things together, if we understand it correctly, and that is the word mercy. Amen? Mercy is given to the defeated by the victor. That is the true way that mercy works. You know what our problem is today? We, we don't understand that we've been defeated. In fact, there are people today that you, you capture them, you put them in prison, you lock them up and you say, listen, you lost the battle. And they say, no, I haven't. I'm still alive. I haven't lost. I'm still going to fight. And no matter what you do to me, what do you do with a person like that? I mean, there was a general in World War II, I believe it was, It says, what do you do with an enemy who's willing to die for his cause? He said, you let him. You have to fight the battle and win. You know what? God is not into giving up or surrendering. That's what the cross was all about. He is not going to back down. He is not going to surrender to you. He is not going to give up one bit of His holiness to accommodate one moment of our sinfulness as human beings. And these verses here, and we're going to start reading in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 2, For through the law I am dead to the law that I might live unto Christ. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, most people, when they read this, or if if you read it uh, very summarily and and not extremely carefully, are going to say, boy, that, that almost sounds like double talk. It just keeps going back in circles. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we encourage you to read your Bible, because unless you understand what is being the background of this verse, unless you understand the, what the Bible means by all of this, those verses are, are just going to have no real import to you at all. He says... By the law, he says, for I through the law am dead to the law. What does the Bible say? For the wages of sin, finish it with me if you know it, is death. James chapter 1, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth what? Death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But until you understand that that penalty is due you, you're going to keep living. 
You're going to keep making your own decisions. Paul said, listen, I surrendered to the penalty of the law. I understand that my sin demands my death. That I'm defeated. That I am broken. That I cannot save myself. I cannot undo my sins. I cannot find God's grace in anything that I do. You know, we love stories where it looks like the hero has been defeated. I mean, we, it gets down to the very last ounce of life or the very last moment before total destruction and all of a sudden the hero struggles and he pushes the button or he swings the sword or he pulls the trigger. Somehow in that last desperation, we, we love stories like that. But could I challenge you today that the reason we don't have victory in our lives is because we're too busy living in fantasy land trying to swing the last sword or push the last button or do the last thing and we've already lost. Sin has already defeated us. There is no victory. But if we'll come to a place called the cross of Jesus Christ, we can surrender to the penalty of death only to hear God say, I've already paid it for you. Amen? But we can't receive God's mercy until we surrender. I'll tell you, if you ever want to study a real life happenings that illustrate this point, study the American South after the Civil War. There were certain people who understood that they were defeated and surrendered and took mercy and moved forward. There were other people. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, died in a prison cell writing out mad ravings of how that he was going to eventually conquer and retake and get his freedom and reinstitute a new nation based on slavery. The man was mad. And yet, he never surrendered. And he died just a horrible, broken human being. Yet, those that did surrender and received mercy learned how to live in a free nation. And every once in a while, I'll meet someone that's still fighting the Civil War. 
said, what in the world is your problem? How many of you have ever seen that bumper sticker, the South is going to do it again? Has anybody ever seen that? Here's what you tell them. You say, I really don't understand this bumper sticker. And they'll look at you kind of funny. I said, why would you want to lose twice? Amen. Uh, They lost the first time. And if they're going to do it again, I guess they're going to lose again, right? I mean, it just gets ridiculous. But we hold on to that which cannot save us. We hold on to that which is totally lost. And it is the very thing that cuts us off from receiving God's mercy. You know, even in these 12-step programs that are out there, and I'm, I'm thankful for everyone that's helped off alcohol and gambling and other things, but if you want real help, you're going to have to go past the 12-step program. Uh, God will not save you because of 12 steps. God will save you when you finally give up. But let me tell you, even the people that founded AA and all of those organizations, what is the first thing that you have to do? My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And then what they do? Well, I'll tell you what. My name is Pete Montoro, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm no longer what I was. Because I surrendered myself and received His mercy. And He changed me. You see, the life which I now live doesn't belong to me because I ruined the first one. I forfeited it because of my choice to sin. But, but, when I surrendered at the cross and received His mercy, He gave me life. And Paul ends this little uh, statement, this little pocket of truth here by saying, I do not frustrate the grace of God. He said, I'm not making a problem here. You understand that God is not just taking my sin and sweeping it under the carpet and pretending that it didn't happen. He said, I'm not frustrating uh, the grace of God. He said, what I'm doing is fulfilling the grace of God because the law demands my death. And as I surrendered to that death, I found that Jesus paid the price. That's what he means by if righteousness come by the law. He said if if there was anything good that I could do that would obtain my salvation, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. But Jesus did die on the cross. Because there's nothing that I can do to obtain my own salvation. Therefore, I must come and receive his mercy. At an old rugged cross. That's how you get saved, my friend. By the way, how you get saved is how you live. Let's go to Luke chapter 9 and verse Jesus is teaching here, and he said to them all, verse 23, If any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In verse, in chapter 14, verse 27, it said, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we hear these verses and we look at these verses. Stay here in Luke chapter 9. It says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, we hear that and it's so different for us today. I mean, we in our church, I built a pulpit to look like a cross. Uh, women wear little crosses around their necks and... And it is an ornamentation. It is part of our society. Uh, we say we're Christians, that, that we use the sign of the cross and all of these things. But I, I want to tell you something. When Jesus said, take up his cross daily, the Jewish people who lived there had a whole different thought process compared concerning the cross than you and I do. And, and I've told the story that, and, and this is just from history, that when Roman soldiers marched into the land of Israel, they came down that main highway uh, that goes right from Damascus all the way down to the city of Jerusalem. And they wanted to show and to uh, stop all resistance. And so they cut down poles. And they drove them into the ground and after driving them into the ground, they found people who would resist the power of Rome, who had fought against them, who were taken prisoner. And when they ran out of them, they just found people and they nailed them or impaled them upon these poles and lined the highway with crosses. They said, this is what Rome is going to do to you if you don't do what we say. The cross was one of the most Hideous forms of execution. We're familiar with the story of Jesus and the two thieves that were crucified with him on that day and how that their bodies were taken down before sunset because uh, of the Jewish traditions and things. And, and uh, yet that's not the normal way the cross worked. They just put you up there until you were dead. If it took a day, that was fine. If it took a week, that didn't bother them any. And by the way, there weren't details uh, 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 set up to go down and take the people off the crosses when they were dead. It was something that was left there as a symbol of the power and the domination of Rome. And here Jesus is telling these people, with all of these horrible images and thoughts in their mind, that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross. See, the cross is a place of death. There was nothing beautiful about the cross. And yet Jesus told his disciples... You need to take up that cross daily. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, if you would. Galatians chapter 6. 
and verse 14. It says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. He says, God forbid that I should glory. Now, the word glory means to boast about or to glorify or to say something good about. And Paul is writing here and he said, I'm not going to glory in anything except the cross. He said, because it's at the cross that I'm crucified to the world. And the world is crucified to me. We have a great problem in all of our lives. It's called the world. The world is always trying to get our attention and pull it outside. One of the things that we try to do with the songs that we sing and the way we sing those songs is to take your attention off the world and the things that are out there. I'll be really glad when the football stuff is over because people come to church thinking about football. Uh, is my team going to win? Is, is, and I'll tell you what, it's just a dumb ball. That, that's all it is. And yet it takes so much attention from us. But how many of us are worried about the economy? Don't raise your hand. How many of you are worried about world events and what's going on? And I'll, I'll tell you what. There's a lot going on in this world that ought to frighten you. But if I'm crucified unto the world, that means I'm dead. And if the world is crucified unto me, that means that it's off limits, that it's dead, that there's a barrier that God intends for there to be there. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to work a job, that I'm not allowed to earn income and all of these things. Uh, But what it means is I'm not doing what I do for the same reason the world does what they do. You know what? If you have been blessed with a job and gainful employment, you ought to do the best that you possibly can so that you can be a good testimony to Jesus Christ. Being a poor employee, a poor workman does not reflect positively on Jesus Christ. I've known people say, well, the Bible tells me I got a witness. Well, it doesn't tell you to steal time from the boss to witness. I knew the story of a guy who worked in a factory. And uh, he always had something going on because, you know, somebody needed a tool. Somebody needed uh, 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 help doing something. And that was, I, I don't know if he put in four or five hours of honest work a week. But he was witnessing to people. I'll tell you what, that's dishonest. That's not what it's talking about here. 
But if your sole goal is to climb the corporate ladder and win the rat race, uh, the only way you're going to win the rat race, my friend, is to be the best rat. The last time I checked, we're supposed to be sheep, not rats. Amen? Now, let me ask you a question. How do sheep swim with sharks and not be eaten? Isn't that the other euphemism we use? You've got to swim with the sharks, you know, and all of this. Uh, let me tell you something. It does not happen. Sheep don't swim, number one. Number two, uh, they don't fight off sharks. The only way, there's, only, there's two things you have to do to swim with sharks and not be eaten. Number one is be a shark, and number two, don't bleed. Uh, if either one of those things happen to you, you uh, are, are not true, you're going to swim with the sharks and get eaten. And so don't try to compete with the world. Don't try to beat the world. Don't try to reform the world. That's the problem with Islam. They think they're going to reform the world. They should have learned from the Catholics. It doesn't work. The Catholics have done it for over a thousand years and failed and failed and failed. In fact, they did a worse job at being worldly than most of the worldlings ever were. It's God's job to reform the world. It's your job to be dead to the world. And you know what? If there were more Christians, there wouldn't be enough worldlings to do what they wanted to do first. That's the way it used to be here in America. There were so many Christians, or people that at least lived like Christians, that the world really didn't have much of a say in a lot of these things. That wasn't a bad thing. You see, let's go to one more verse and then we'll be done. Mark chapter 8. In verse 35, Mark chapter 8, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. We read that verse and we say, okay, yeah, I understand, I need to... No, here's... We need to put it in context of the cross. If you'll go to the cross where you are crucified unto the world and the world unto you, if you'll go to the cross and accept the penalty of death that belongs to you and your hopes and wants and aspirations, your desires, your accomplishments, the things that you can do, if you'll leave them at the cross and take the life that Jesus wants you to live, guess what? You're going to find out what true life is all about. That's what this verse means. As long as you're trying to live your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose it, you'll give it all up. Guess what? You'll find that life and that life more abundantly in Jesus Christ than anything the world could ever promise. 
So the final question is, where are you today? Do you understand the contradictions of the cross? How that God took all of His wrath and all of His love, put them at the same place. Jesus took the wrath so that you and I, you and I can enjoy His love. It's a place of defeat. It is the place where we must accept our total and utter defeat. There is no way we can earn or be deserving of any of God's righteousness. And yet the very moment that we surrender to our defeat and, and, and understand and admit and come to God and surrender to Him, He gives us His mercy. And it is the place of death. But once we embrace the death of ourselves, the end of our life, we can have His life. You see, there's a lot of contradictions at the cross. But if we'll come there, it is the only place that we can have God's power active in our life. It's the only place that His mercy can be applied to our sin-sick souls. And it is the only place that we will find life and service to Him who's done so much for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning. And Lord, we just ask that you would work in our hearts and in our lives. That you would help us to be willing to look to you. To come to a place called the cross. And to see your judgment poured out upon our Savior. So that we can enjoy His love. A place where we can see and understand our defeat and yet Your victory. A place that we can lose our life yet get life eternal. Lord, we ask that You would help us to live in these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Brother Franz comes to lead the hymn of invitation, will you simply make the decisions that the Lord would have you to make in your life today? Let's stand together.